Welcome to Insult My Intelligence. Our two guests today have spent their careers trying to locate, describe, and understand species previously unknown to science. We don't know how many undiscovered species there are out there because, well, they're undiscovered. But the 1.7 million species of plants and animals that we do know about are reckoned to be about a quarter of the total on Earth. If you're thinking most of the rest must be tiny, and probably insects, you'd be right. About 4 million are estimated to be insects, but that still leaves room for undiscovered vertebrates, even mammals. Later we'll be talking to Christopher Helgen, an explorer who actually goes in search of undiscovered species. But our first guest is Mario Mora, a biologist and ecologist from Brazil who led a study that tried to predict what type of species have yet to be discovered and where they're most likely to be found. Can you just explain how you go about trying to quantify how much we don't know? So uh, I, I prepared an analogy that might help understand okay. this. So imagine a person collecting apples in a tree, right? You can think that in the first minute, this person is able to collect 10 apples in this tree, right? In the second minute, uh, he or she collects just eight apples, then five apples, something is going on, right? you can see that the number of apples collected per minute is going down, right? So the collection mm -hmm. rate of apples is decreasing over time. So why? So probably uh, the first apples were those easier to collect. They were more reachable, or sweeter, more attractive to the eyes, right? And those apples that remain on the tree are those that are not within reach at higher heights or perhaps those that are green, not really attractive. So uh, you might need new tools, new tools to get these apples, like I, uh, I forgot the word, like I- Like a ladder. Yes, yes. <laughs> 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 to get those apples that are at higher heights, right? So uh, we, can we can use this analogy to understand that the rate of collection tends to decrease with time. Right, and as closer we get to collect all apples on the tree, uh, less apples we will be collecting per minute. And anything as bigger than a dog, <laughs> we've we've probably discovered it already. Yes. So the the system of describing the species started in 1758, like almost mm -hmm. 260 years ago, and back then. Most species that were described, they were like uh, large-sized and they occurred in really vast regions, like widely distributed species. So they were easier to find and they occurred everywhere. So anyone could find them and then describe it. And as our knowledge was progressing, right, uh, we started to describe species that are quite smaller, or they occur in just a few regions. They are like endemic species with narrow distributions. They are living in isolated regions, like quite remote regions, like the top of mountains, or, or in really inaccessible regions. With so it's it's not just characteristics related to the species, like size and where they are, but also characteristics related to us like where those species are. They, they are located in regions with high accessibility, like there are a lot of roads, it's easier to get there. Human population density in those regions are high or low. 
this was also taken into consideration when trying to estimate this uh, the number of undiscovered species. You've also estimated the places where the next new species are most likely to be discovered on Earth. And one of them happens to be where you are in Brazil. Yes, yes. So Brazil stands out with 10% of all future discoveries of terrestrial vertebrates. It's like the top, the top country in the world to discover new species. And, it were, and is that because it's parts of it aren't explored or that people just aren't looking? It's actually because we have so many species here. Like it's a huge country with, uh, it's a mega diverse country. Like the biodiversity in Brazil is already one of the most uh, rich in the world. So it's like, it's the top one country in number of amphibians. Uh, it's among the top countries in the number of reptiles birds and, and so many other in so many other groups and actually it's compared with like uh, northern countries brazil has many folds more species to describe it right and it's not that no one is looking it's it's too much work to do i saw and I, I saw also on your on the graph in your study not far off rodents and bats was was primates yes actually uh Primate, primate is like the third mammal group with the highest discovery potential. We have rodents at, in first, bats in second, and primates in third. And how, how big could these be? I mean, we're not talking about Bigfoot. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as we're talking about mammals, I, I have prepared some numbers to, to get an overview about what is going on with mammals species. So since, since the year 2000, almost 800 species of mammals were described since the year 2000. So it, this is just, this is like, on average, three new species every month of mammals, right? In, in seven out of these 10 new species, they will be of rodents or, or, or bats, right? So just last year, 42 new species of mammals were described. So it's not something really uncommon to describe a new species, even for mammals, which are considered a well-known group, right? For amphibians and reptiles, these numbers are like hundreds of new species described every year. Every year. Every year. Wow. Yeah. So, but uh, regarding primates, we estimate that about eight to nine percent of all future discoveries of mammals will be of primates, uh, and those. They, those might be located especially in tropical forests, like in, in Amazon, Congo, Indonesia, right? In, in regions that are quite remote and, and less explored. But it's, it's quite common to have new species of mammals being described, including primates. I haven't checked when was <laughs> the last year in which a new species of primate was described, but also I can try to get that information really quick. That would be great. It'd be great to have a, yeah, to list him. Maybe put a picture. I'm, I'm presuming it's going to be a very small monkey. Let's see, let's see. At this point, we both started looking up what the most recent primate discovery was. It's called the Schneider marmoset. It has white fur and a face like a bat and lives in the Amazon rainforest in what is known as the arc of deforestation. That's sort of amazing that uh, there's a monkey out there that nobody has seen before. Or I suppose people have seen it. 
but it hasn't been described. Yeah, it, it was said. not formally described, let's say that. Mario is right. It's not that no one has ever seen this before. It's just that it was assumed to be part of another species called Emilia's marmoset. And many of those species, they, they already exist, right? So they have been out there for ages, but we haven't uh, formally described them, named those. So it's, it's more difficult to, to do conservation planning or, or to use uh, knowledge about those species if we don't have a name for them. And, and uh, we also noticed that carnivora was the undiscovered species prediction is not zero. It's small, but it's not zero. So is it possible that there's an undiscovered top predator out there? It's, it's like the estimates for this, they are quite low. It's, yeah. it's like less than 1% of chances of having a, a, a new carnivora described in, in the future. I'm not saying that it's impossible, but less than 1%. So it's close to zero. zero. It's close to zero, <laughs> yeah. The last uh, new species of carnivora described, it was described in 2013. That most recent carnivore discovery, it's called the Olinguito, and it was discovered back in 2013 when a team of explorers went to the Andes. The team was out there in order to... Well, why don't I just let the leader of that expedition explain? Here's Christopher Helgen, Chief Scientist and Director of the Australian Museum Research Institute and the last person to discover a carnivore. You know, I might encourage anyone listening to uh, get on their computer and, and uh, type into the search engine Olinguito. Um, it's not huge. It's not small. It's, a, it's, a, it, you know, it's around the size of a big house cat, you know, but this is an animal that uh, it lives only in cloud forests, these sort of forests at sufficiently high elevation that they're kind of romantic and evocative. You know, the cloud socks them in for much of the day and they're, they're these misty habitats up in the high Andes. This animal lives there. And the Olinguito is a member of the raccoon family, uh, which is in turn closely related to the bear family and the dog family and um, less closely related to the cat family and the hyenas. So these are these uh, families of, of mammals that are classified in the order carnivora. You know, they're carnivorous animals. And traditionally, from the 1800s, 1900s into, you know, our, our 20th century and 21st century, these are groups that are really, really well studied. But Helgen's search for the Olinguito didn't start in the cloud forests of the high Andes. It began, as most of his searches do, in the middle of a big city. But people tend to think of explorers, I mean, classically, when you think of an explorer finding a new species, you think of some, someone with binoculars and, and a safari hat parting some ferns and finding a little creature hidden there. Your discoveries, uh, your searches very often start in museum drawers. Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And that is one of the kind of most important facets of this kind of work, you know. So it's not that we walk in the door and we're looking in the galleries and dioramas and see the, the soaring dinosaur bones above us. You know, it's not it's not the scene in a natural history museum that the public imagines when they look to their mind's eye. Um, it's something very different, which for reasons that elude me, I, I have a hard time understanding them, remain an incredibly well-kept secret, even though museums try to, to let people know. We sing stories about what we have, which is behind the scenes, we have gigantic collections that have been built up over decades or in many cases, centuries that are stored in things like drawers and cabinets or 
jars in large storage rooms. Over time, those efforts uh, accumulate. And, you know, when I think, let's say I have a mammal, maybe it's a flying fox, a gigantic bat, you know, maybe it's a um, a, a raccoon of some kind. And I think, well, this could be new. I might have a, a, a good reason for thinking so. Where am I going to go? I'm going to go um, behind the scenes in many of the large naturalist museums of the world. From a young age, Helgen realized that science didn't have a solid grasp of how many species there were within the raccoon family, particularly in the Olingo branch, and he set out to fix this. After years of study and searching, Helgen found himself in the Field Museum in Chicago. The museum let me be there in the middle of the night during the Christmas holidays, and I was pulling out the drawers, these big, heavy metal drawers out of these locked metal cabinets. I'd unlock them and pull them out, and I pulled out one drawer, and it was filled with these richly orangish-red colored pelts. And I pulled it, and I'd seen I'd seen almost all the olingos that anyone had ever brought back to a museum in the world. These are South and Central American animals, and I pretty much made sense of the group. And I'd never seen anything like this before. Along with the pelts, Helgen found a skull and some teeth. After initial DNA tests, he had what he thought was conclusive proof of a brand new species. So I would be within my rights to use kind of what I'd found in that collection to introduce it to the world and name it. But in a way, we'd be none the wiser because, you know, is this animal still out there? Sure, you've got some skins and skulls, um, but I wanted to know more. So, you know, I do what I often do, which is mount a major field expedition. Um, The question was, where do we go? These specimens in the field museum were from some mountaintop areas in the southern part of the Andes in Colombia. And as we, you know, investigated more, reached out to people, you know, looked at satellite photography, we realized these places where hunters, a hunter had collected these things, shot these things and sent them back to the museum uh, 60 years prior, were mostly deforested now. You know, they were like uh, agricultural fields or they were towns now. And so the world had changed and it changes fast. So uh, anyways, I had a, a, a young scientist, a colleague in Ecuador and uh, it was just across the border, you know, from where these Colombian ones had been found. And we said, let's find the same kind of montane habitat across the border in Ecuador. Let's find what might, could be a good candidate area. We picked a spot. He did some reconnaissance. He said, yeah, it looks, it looks right. We went down there, needle in a haystack effort. You know, are we going to find this animal? Will we know it when we see it? The very first night we were there at nighttime looking up in the trees, we saw this animal. We finally kind of wrapped it all together, uh, announced it in a, in a huge press conference and uh, published this paper, you know, quite a, a thick kind of monograph of scientific work demonstrating that, you know, uh, conclusively there were four species of, of carnivores in the, in the Olingo part of the family tree. And one of them, the most distinctive and the earliest branching off evolutionarily of the is this beautiful, thick-furred, reddish-pelt animal called the Olinguito. And uh, that was, you know, that was just one of, of my mammals, but um, that is certainly one of the most memorable. And it's it's probably uh, towards the very top of the list in terms of, you know, species that have really uh, captured some attention. You know, that was, on, that was on the front page of many newspapers around the world. So, I mean, it turned out someone had one in a zoo for a long time and, and didn't know what it was. They thought it was an Olingo. I'm even forgetting that. That's that's one of the great parts of this story. And, you know, if 
that it's also it's also one of the you know the aspects that makes it absolutely ludicrous you know when it comes down to the claim that we discovered it in a way so yes yes in in the taxonomic sense we discovered this animal but it had been around for millions of years it had been in museums for you know uh, many decades and I, I wanted to know everything about every olingo that I could possibly know that I worked back through zoo records uh, and we, um, you know, collected samples from Ecuador and we had some from old skins and pelts. And then we ended up getting our hands on a tissue sample that was from the 1960s or 70s and had been on ice ever since. And it was an Olingo sample. And so we ran the DNA and to our, you know, amazement, you know, our brand new discovery, it comes out with the Olinguitos. We, we figured out where the scientists decades ago had gotten that sample. It was from a zoo animal. That particular animal had this incredible life. It was collected. We, we ultimately reconstructed. It was collected in the mountains of Colombia, near Cali, Colombia. It was sent up to a zoo curator enthusiast, a German guy who has was completely obsessed with raccoons and their relatives. So all of these raccoon-like mammals, he wanted every single one in his zoo in Louisville. So it ends up in Louisville. And we trace its history. Then it went. It went to Tucson. It went to uh, the Bronx Zoo. It went to the National Zoo in Washington. You know, just in the span of a few years. Why did this animal move so much? Because they wanted it to breed with the regular Olingos that were in their zoo, and that's why they brought in this animal. They're hoping for babies. Well, it didn't want anything to do with, and and wouldn't breed with any of the Olingos in any of the places they sent it, you know, the stock standard notion of a species is, you know, it's usually not going to breed with any other species. Well, that's what this animal was doing. It was showing the scientists at the time and the zoo curators at the time that it, it wasn't, it wasn't the right sort of animal at all. This is an example of what Mario Mora calls cryptic species, animals that look similar to known species, but are genetically distinct. Some of these animals, they might be cryptic species, so when you look, they, they seem the same, but when you do a more deep investigation, you can find difference. Like perhaps this difference will be related on how these species uh, call, like bioacoustics, bio or they will be genetic difference. You need to analogy, analyze the behavior of the species. So some of these differences will need more data to be able to be detected. Right, so uh, we need to create new ways to investigate these species, or actually collect more data in order to have a better representation. You can think that describing it as a species is like uh, solving a puzzle. If you have just a few pieces, it will be harder to understand what is the image that this puzzle is forming, right? But as you collect more pieces of this puzzle, you get closer to the answer. Just because humans struggle to tell them apart by looking, that doesn't mean the species aren't different. The Olingito isn't just a smaller Olingo. The two species are, as Christopher Helgen says, more genetically distinct than humans and bonobos. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's easy to lose track of that because we're so human-centric, as we must be as human beings. The, uh, the amount of evolutionary divergence is maybe akin or, or even greater. Um, in these animals. So you're, what we're diagnosing in these cases are important, solid, and oftentimes longish branches on the tree of life. You know, not just the minimal twigs where we found, 
you know, a, a slight variation on something. You know, this is a really distinct kind of mammal that for three, four, maybe longer million years has been, um, you know, on its own evolutionary path and its own gene pool up in these Andean forests. But unless lest people think this is all over and that with the search for mammals has taken us back to drawers and extinct species, you discovered a new primate in 2020. Yeah, yeah, a new primate in 2020, another new primate in 2017. And uh, these are these are cool animals and they're big animals. So in 2020, <laughs> we announced uh, the uh, we sort of revealed the existence of an animal that we called um, the pulpa langur. This is found only in, in Myanmar and in Burma. And it's only found on a, a handful of areas. There's only a few hundred of these animals left. And it's, again, not that no one had ever seen this animal. This one in particular was a case of nuanced mistaken identity. So there are a number of other monkeys in, in forests in Asia around where this monkey lives that look somewhat like it. They're not exactly it. They have slightly different color patterns and tail lengths and things so that when we look close, we could tell the teeth apart, the, the fur apart, then definitely the DNA apart from others, all of which clinched the case that this is absolutely um, a species of monkey that needs to be recognized as distinct from all others. And I mentioned another primate in 2017. This was um, a species that uh, lives in a similar part of Asia. It's on the border of China and Myanmar. And this was an ape. So this was a species of gibbon. Um, there's uh, there's about 20 species of gibbon in the world, um, but they're you know related to um, the greater ape, the great apes, which are ourselves, chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas. So these are mo not monkeys. Again, these are apes. And it, it's to me, I think um, people should be aware that even in 2017, and you know it'll happen again, I'm sure. Apes, those species of animals that are so closely related to people, you know, that are that are our few, our handful of closest relatives that still survive on the planet. It's even amongst mammals like that that we're finding undescribed uh, species. So this, this is a very special gibbon. It's um, a kind of hulak gibbon. Um, the males uh, have these bright kind of white masks on their face and uh, slightly different markings on the faces of, of females. They're beautiful animals. They're big. They're intelligent. Only a couple hundred living in this uh, protected area on the edge of the, the China-Burmese border. And of course, when you've discovered a new species, you don't just get the credit. You get to call it whatever you want. This young kind of up-and-coming uh, scientist, uh, Kai He, he's, he was a Star Wars fan. And he said, you know, can we name it after something from popular culture that will attract a lot of attention? I said, ah... I don't know. It's a bit gauche. I don't know if we should do anything like that. And he came back the next day and he said, I've got it, you know. And he points out to me that the, the gibbon, which is elegant, sort of brocciating, arm swinging motion through the tree. And the way that it moves um, is sort of alluded to in, in Chinese literature as this heavenly motion. So he said, you know, the heavenly motion, how about if we call it in, in Chinese, sort of you know, refer to its heavenly motion, and then we use that to translated to skywalking or skywalker given in English. I said, all right, we can do that. In 2017, when we announced this really cool biodiversity discovery and endangered species of ape, um, you know, it ends up in the press as the Skywalker Hulak Gibbon. Within minutes, Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker himself, 
you know, had grabbed a hold of this with great gusto and 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 just tremendous enthusiasm, was posting it all over social media. And within days, you know, in China and outside of China, a billion people have sort of learned about the existence of the Skywalker Hulot Gibbon. And again, you ask, you know, the point or why in that case, that was an animal that went from endangered and, you know, endangerment and obscurity to, you know, in a matter of a couple of days, you know, a uh, globally understood, recognized, appreciated animal that now has a lot of attention given to it. But does an undiscovered animal really want the attention? Does it benefit species when humans discover them? Is it dangerous? I mean, do we pose a threat to these new species when we discover them? Is it better for them to stay hid? No, actually, they are not hid from the threats, right? The threats that are threatening those species, like deforestation, hunting, uh, pollution, all those threats, they are already happening. So actually, it's, it's a good thing when we put a name on a species because we can start developing conservation strategies, conservation programs. We can protect those species, declare that they are threatened, and force legislation to save those species, or at least to difficult the human pressure on those species. We can prohibit, for example, hunting, we can do something to avoid the extinction of those species. Like the threat, it's already there. It gets its scientific name. It enters, you know, global uh, lists and agreements and treaties, things like, you know, the IUCN list, things like the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species. And when species get named, they flow through to the kind of established infrastructure of the ways that we identify, protect and regulate. Before we finished, I wanted to know from Chris where he was headed next and what new mammal he would soon be discovering. I'm going to Fiji next. I'm going to Fiji, out to the Pacific. You know, the islands of Fiji, look at them on a map. There's, some of them are really big. Geologically, they're very old. I'm on the trail of bats again. Uh, it's a little bit like the Olangito, but this time, a few years ago, somebody sent me pictures of a really large bat from an island system in the corner of Fiji. Very, very, very hard to get to. It's a picture of a bat I've never seen before. That's going to take me on the trail to figure out what it is. I'm sure it's new to science. Um, I'm headed there next. Thanks for listening to Insult My Intelligence, hosted by me, Tim Dowling, and produced by Johnny Dowling. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening. Thanks to my guests, Mario Mora and Christopher Helgen. And follow us on Twitter at InsultMyIntel. And if you have an idea or a topic for an episode, email us at insultmyintelshow at gmail.com or visit our website, insultmyintelshow.com. Insult